This is episode number 393 with Principal Data Scientist at Oracle, John Peach. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you back here on the show. Just got off the Zoom call with John Peach. We've got an exciting episode coming up for you. So what you need to know about John is that he was previously the senior da- a senior data scientist at Amazon, and currently he's a principal data scientist at Oracle. And also, in addition to all of that, John has a strong background in research, which he brings to the world of data science. And that's why um, the slogan for this podcast is putting the science into data science. The thing is that, as you'll hear in this podcast, data science evolved in such a way that we've jumped into it and we're bringing businesses value through it. We've got lots of tools in data science. However, the science component of data science actually never got to be developed like it has been developed in uh, physics or chemistry or um, mathematics and, and other areas uh, scientific uh, in other scientific fields. And so here we're taking a step back in this podcast, we're taking a step back as John is showing us how we can bring that scientific mindset, what kind of frameworks we can use in order to bring hypothesis testing, defining, iterating ideas, empathizing with our Um, customers, understanding the problems that we need to solve, and lots of very important concepts and how that world differs from the typical way we normally do data science. So in this podcast, you'll hear about data science workflow by Oracle uh, and data science design thinking. That's one of the big three topics that we discussed today. Then another topic is literate statistical programming and why it's important and how it is different to literate programming. And Finally, the third big uh, pillar of today's episode is data unit testing. Uh, probably my favorite uh, topic of today, and it will—it's uh, a—it's a cool tip on how to uh, test your incoming data to uh, explain and avoid or prevent model drift, uh, so that your models can last longer. So there we go. That's what this podcast is about today. Let's put the science into data science. And without further ado, I bring to you John Peach, Principal Data Scientist at Oracle. Welcome everybody to the Super Data Science Podcast. Super excited to have you on the show. Today's guest is John Peach uh, calling in from California. John, how are you going today? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Amazing. It's it's great to have you. Great to have you. Um, you mentioned that you have made, uh, this is your second time moving to the U.S. from Canada. Tell us about how that first time went and why Why is this your second time? Yeah, so I moved to Vermont um, in 97 to do a master's and PhD in um, mechanical engineering at the University of Vermont. Mm-hmm. And when I was finished that, I moved back to Canada, to the French part of Canada. I uh, didn't speak a word of French. Mm-hmm. Um, where I met an amazing woman, um, and she was doing her PhD, and I was a faculty member at a different university. Um, so, so I wasn't <laughs> dating a student. <laughs> no conflict over there. No conflict. <laughs> she, she's a neuroscientist. Um, so then uh, the second move um, happened in 2013. She finished her PhD and got a, a postdoc position at uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh-huh. And so we moved to San Francisco and mm-hmm. I left academia. Uh, I'm an academic at heart, but um, mm-hmm. got into industry. And, you know, if you're in San Francisco, you do the startup thing. Yeah. So I went into a bunch of startups um, as a data scientist. Um, we moved around the Bay Area a little bit. She ended up going to uh, Stanford for her second postdoc. So we mm-hmm. moved closer to there. 
And now we're in Southern California for her third postdoc at UC Irvine. Wow, third postdoc. Wow, amazing. What's what's the topic of her thesis? Um, so she studies... Oh, sorry, research. Research, yeah, research. So she studies um, the mechanisms in the in vision, basically, how, how the different circuitry wires together in the brain so that um, people with a, a disorder called amblyopia, basically, where they just use one eye, um, mm. how that produces vision in the brain. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. she uses a most model for that. And I help okay. her with her research. Um, okay. She does all the bench work, and um, I help her with the analytics. And, and I've taught her literate statistical programming and stuff like that um, to scale up her research. Wow. She uses power. huge amounts of data. Oh, wow. Um, you guys are like a power couple. Yeah, we've heard that a couple of times. That's awesome. That's <laughs> Super <awesome>. nerdy couple. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, all right. Okay, cool. So how are you enjoying Irvine? I love it. It's an amazing place. It's um, mm. the weather is spectacular, especially coming from Canada. Like I love Canada, um, but you know I have not had to shovel snow once in Irvine. <laughs> you know my house might fall down or burn to the ground, but I haven't yeah. had to shovel snow. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I heard like I I was at Irvine once in uh, I think uh, end of last year or somewhere around October last year, right after Data Science Go in San Diego. And I learned a lot about this uh, city. It's not too far from LA, about two hours south. And it's highly underrated in terms of its um, significance for the tech world. I believe a lot of companies uh, have offices there, like Amazon, a lot of the big four consulting firms, uh, I think Ernst Young, maybe I'm mistaking which one, but uh, quite a big presence of companies and even headquarters of different organizations there. Uh, what is going on in Irvine? Why is it like a tech hub that not many people know about? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It um, It's a real big hub for the financial services industry, like Experian is here. And there's, um, like you said, Amazon and Oracle. And there's also a, a large number of small to medium-sized startups in the tech field. And... Mm. Um, you're right. It, it's just really underrated, and it's it's a great place to live. And there's lots going on, and we have a, a great sort of tech community that's happening here, mm-hmm. and, and just outside of LA. And UCI, University of California, Irvine, fantastic place. Like when I was there, the campus is so big. They have their own restaurants on on campus. You can like walk from one restaurant area to another. There's, I think, oh, I don't remember the number, but Tens of thousands of students go to that university. It's huge. It's huge. Um, and it's like living in a park. Um, mm. I actually live on campus. Oh, <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a great school. Uh, they do a lot of really good um, AI research that's happening here that's just not well known. Like People know about the, the UCI uh, machine learning repository for like data and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But there's a very large research group here in AI. Mm-hmm. Well, fantastic, fantastic. Well, um, very excited to have you on board. And as I mentioned before the podcast, congrats on the new job at Oracle. Well, relatively new, seven months at Oracle. How are you enjoying your time there? I love it. It's um, it's been a big change. Uh, before that, I was at Amazon, and that was that was a great job. Uh, moved to Oracle uh, basically because I have an interest in the data science workflow and. Mm-hmm. They just started up a, a new service, a data science service on the Oracle Cloud. Mm-hmm. And you know, I want to get in on the ground floor and, and help direct that product so mm-hmm. that data scientists would have better workflows. And mm-hmm. it's a great company to work for, work with great people, um, doing lots of really sort of amazing things. And we're very early days in our product. It's mm-hmm. general availability. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's there's not a whole lot of past history so that we can go and and do amazing things and and help data scientists work better and faster. Wonderful. What is a data science workflow in a nutshell? Um Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, there's <laughs> <laughs> um you see all kinds of graphs where, you know, you see this life cycle of data science and or you see like a data science pipeline and I, mm-hmm. I think those very much are oversimplifications. 
the, the data science workflow really starts with identifying the right questions, which is actually probably the hardest thing to do, like figuring mm-hmm. out the right thing to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, you know, your boss is saying like, hey, can you go figure out X? X mm-hmm. may not really be what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very iterative process. It's not like, you know, you do your data collection, then you do your analysis, and then you build your model. Um, that's not really the way it works. It's you, you kind of follow that path, but you often circle back to earlier stages within that. So you, you know, you, you think about the problem, you ideate over it, and then you, you know, you develop your hypothesis and then you collect the data and, and prototype it. And, you know, as you're doing that, you may go like, oh, maybe I didn't ask really the right question. Maybe I need to rephrase that question, or maybe I don't have the data to answer that question, but I can, but I have data that's proxy to it. So mm-hmm. I can answer this other question that, that gets us closer to what we really truly want to know. So it's this very iterative process. And um, I think there's a problem around tooling, around um, expertise and being able to sort of track your work when you're doing this iterative back and forth um, you know, branching off, checking out an idea, and then coming back, and then branching off again. Um, I think that's really the data science workflow that, mm-hmm. that people do, and not this like you do one thing, then the next. It's not a waterfall process. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, it kind of ties into uh, what you spoke about at Data Science Go 2019 last year: design thinking, right? Data science design thinking that it's you gotta you gotta iterate. And talk to your clients and so on. But but let's talk about a bit more about this data science workflow. So, to the extent, of course, you can share without disclosing any uh, secrets or upcoming, you know, giving spoilers about what's coming up uh, for us in in the Oracle space. Uh, how are you? How are you going to solve that problem? What what, what is your vision for a solution like a tech solution or online solution or whatever kind of solution it is for people to to help data scientists with this data science workflow exploration process? Yeah, so right now what we have is um, the core product is, is a Jupyter notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's a couple of advantages in the service and that you can scale your compute, but we really want to go beyond that. So in the cloud, you can integrate with other services that, that allow you to have the flexibility to share your work, to have immutable models. So we have a model catalog where you create a model and you push that model to the model catalog. And what comes with it is um, the immutability of the model. So the model Mm -hmm. can't change. Mm -hmm. And also metadata, like what notebooks, what data was used to build that model so that you push that model into production and you might have like four or five models in production that are all slightly different that came out of slightly different notebooks. Um, and then, you know, you want to go back and you want to look like, Hey, this one's doing well here. And this one's failing here. Like, can I get back to the exact data that was used, the exact um, model that, sorry, the exact like code that built the model so that I can do a postmortem on it. Um, so bringing that metadata into the meta, into the data catalog is is really important. So it's building tools around that um, integration with Git, so that you can keep your notebook. I mean, how many of us have like notebooks that say final, re- you know, final notebook, final, final notebook, final, final mm-hmm. notebook? Right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so like integrating with Git changes all of that. You can, you know tagged like hey this is the version that i sent off to my boss for analysis and then this was the second version that i sent to him and hey this was like another version that i sent to another person that like had some information retracted or or had you know an extra little bit of analysis but it's it's all in the same compartment it's all in the same git repo you know any models you push out you can you can pull that back and say like hey this is this is the notebook that i that i used it in and then, you know, we want to tie into other services. So we have all the large-scale compute, you know, Spark and databases and stuff like that. And we, you can have all of that in your notebook tied to the data that was there so that you have that ability to, to, to do a post-mortem to analyze what you did. You know, if you had five as an answer somewhere, you can go back and figure out exactly how that five was calculated. Mm-hmm. 
I now remember I had a podcast with uh, Greg Pavlik, mm-hmm. uh, who is, um, I think, uh, one of the executives in in this uh, space of uh, Oracle Cloud. And we spoke about the solution. I just didn't uh, know it was going to be called uh, Data Science Workflow, or maybe that just escaped my memory. So um, I remember being super excited about this. This is definitely something that the day the world of data science needs because as you said, there's so many variables, like the model version, the data version, um, that, that are changing. The what, Why did you do that? If all of that can be somehow archived or somehow traced, that will add a lot of certainty to these data science projects and um, how we experiment with things. Uh, definitely, I think a lot of rework will go away from that. Have you had any uh, early feedback from testers? Yeah, so the, the feedback that we're getting is has been very positive um, on the service. Um, you know, we're growing our, our customer base. Um, you know, there's definitely pain points, mm-hmm. um, and we're very actively uh, fixing those pain points. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's we also have a, an accelerated data science library that comes with it. Mm-hmm. that um, is meant to sort of automate a mm-hmm. lot of the the mundane stuff, you know, like exploratory data analysis. You know, mm-hmm. most of the time you're just generating dozens of graphs and looking at your features and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we, we have like a single command that will do that for you. Nice. Take the thing. And, and people really appreciate that. Nice. So they're, not, they're not sitting there like <laughs> running the same plot 50 times. That's, that, just, sounded, <laughs> that sounded so like... Um, we have a single command that just does it. Like it's it's like you guys have got it also sorted. How how come um how come like uh, more people not using this? Like I wish more people had access to this uh, somehow to be able to do things like that with a single command, right? Like how convenient would that be? Yeah, I think there's there's sort of a real tooling issue in the data science community, and I think that comes out of science. I mean, most people that um, go and get their PhD, which is where sort of data science started. You know, they're mm-hmm. used to, to rolling their own. They, they come up with solutions that are one-off. Um, you know, they, there's not standardized tooling. The lab down the hall that's doing basically the same sort of thing is using different software. Even within the same lab, you know, people use different software and, and do things differently. There's not this sense of we need to productionalize our workflow. We mm-hmm. need to streamline as much as possible. And you see people coming out of a CS sort of background that they're, they're doing that. Um, CS workflows are, are very streamlined, um, standardized tooling. Like they understand the costs of doing something differently than the guy beside them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're starting to see this slow movement towards doing that. Mm-hmm. But but the tooling just isn't there, and the tooling that we have now is is largely CS type tooling, which is quite often unfamiliar to data scientists um, coming out of university. You know, they're not not used to using Git. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a strange, weird thing to them, and wrapping your head around Git is it takes a bit of a learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just don't do it. So they produce you know final report, final final report, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> and you know, like, oh, I'll just change this now, and you know, I'll remember that I made the change, and they don't. Okay. And they're not used to sharing. Gotcha. Just, just quickly, I'm sure we've spoke about this with uh, Greg uh, on the podcast, but if you could reiterate for maybe those who haven't heard that episode, is this tool available for free? Is it paid? What's the price? And things like that. Sure. So it's part of the Oracle cloud infrastructure, and if you uh, go to the Oracle website, you can sign up and get... Uh, 30 days of um, access where you get $300 uh, free to do whatever you want on the service. After that, there is some services that have uh, a free tier. So like you can get a small database uh, that's free forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get some small compute instances that are free forever. Unfortunately, on the data science side, uh, we need bigger machines. Mm-hmm. Um so after 30 days, you would, you would have to pay. But during that 30 days, you get $300 worth of free credits, yeah, which, is, which is a lot. Great to try things out. And, and then if it makes sense, especially on a business side of things, it's good because startups can get into that, right? Like startups exactly. Can, yeah. can scale up that way. 
Hope you're enjoying this amazing episode. We're going to break for a quick announcement and we'll be straight back to it. This episode is brought to you by our very own virtual data science conference called Data Science Go. If you haven't been to Data Science Go yet, if you haven't heard of Data Science Go, check it out at datasciencego.com virtual. There you'll see a recap of the incredible event we had in June this year. We're hosting Data Science Go virtual number two in October. Make sure to be there. We're going to have amazing speakers, amazing energy, and we're going to have virtual networking three-minute sessions to connect with your peers, with mentors, with hiring managers, with mentees, with whoever is at the conference, random lightning networking, three minutes each. You can stay in touch with these people, expand your data science network, be there. It's in October. It's absolutely free. The best part, it's absolutely free. Just go to datasciencego.com slash virtual, register for the event today. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Awesome. Well, let's talk a bit about um, your uh, data science design thinking um, framework because it ties really well into this data science workflow. And I think uh, so. You that was the title of your talk in uh, at Data Science Go 2019. And I think this framework can help people understand better and save time on the data science workflow and like understand the like be a bit more rigorous about it. So yeah. So what is data science design thinking? Um, so before I answer that, let me sort of bring up what I think that one of the problems is that I'm trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So um, typically, new fields start with sort of people that come out with PhDs. And mm-hmm. then you start seeing university programs develop PhD programs around them. And then you start seeing master's programs around them. And then when when the the, the field is fairly well-defined, you start seeing undergraduate programs around them. You haven't seen that in data science. The university started with master's programs. We're now starting to see a couple of undergraduate programs in data science. And what's getting missed is the science aspect of data science, which I think is extremely important. And when you're in grad school doing research, you don't take a class in how to think, Mm -hmm. Um, but you learn to think in a certain way. You learn to think as a scientist. And... Some of that is getting missed. So how do you take somebody that wants to get into data science um, but doesn't want to spend eight years getting a PhD, um, which makes sense. You don't, you don't need a PhD to be a really good data scientist. But what you need to, to do is, is learn to think like a scientist. And you know, there's several different ways you can do that. Like If you're an undergrad, I encourage people to like, go volunteer in a research lab and just get some exposure to it. But if you're, you're out in, working in industry or don't have the time as an undergrad, like, is there something that you can do to learn to think like a scientist? And that's kind of where the data science design thinking comes from. I'm, I'm sort of stealing it from the, the, the design industry. They have this thing called design thinking. It's a, it's a process that they use that overlaps really well with the way that a scientist works. So I've basically taken that and adapted it. There's five primary components to it. There's the empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. Mm -hmm. So in the empathize phase, um, this is, I think, one of the really hardest phases to, to get right. It's you need to understand what the customer needs. So you may have an ask like, hey, can you go figure out X, Y, Z? And that's really not what they need. It's it's understanding what the real question is and then you know getting the customer on board with that so that you're 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 defining for them something that they really want to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of gumption. It, it's hard to go back to the customer or the boss and say, like, hey, I, I don't think that's really the right question. And, and can we talk about you know, these other areas that I think may be the right question that we, we really want to get at. Um, and then the next phase is to define the problem. So problems can be either in design thinking terms, wicked or tame, or I like to refer to them as ill-defined or well-defined. Mm-hmm. So an ill-defined question would be something like, how do we get our customers to click on the blue button? Mm-hmm. Um, where uh, a well-defined question would be, what features or attributes do we need on the website 
that would encourage customers to click on the button so that we see a 10% increase. Mm-hmm. Where you, you're defining exactly what you're going to do and you have something there that's sort of a bit of a null hypothesis mm-hmm. test, right? Mm-hmm. You know, can we increase the number of clicks? Well, if you went up by one, did you increase it? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> where <laughs> you know you, you need something that you can run it's a null test against. It's measurable and objective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the next phase is to to ideate. And this is to really think about the problem, to go talk to experts, think really broadly about the problem. Um, I'm a big believer in stealing. So don't, don't reinvent the wheel. Um, go read literature. You know, most problems you're working on have been solved or lots of research has gone into them. So read, read the scientific literature. Um, that's a hard skill to, to get used to because most of that is really opaque. Um, but I think it's, it's something that anyone can learn to do. Um, go read patents. Most people f- skip over patents and don't think about them. Patents are a great place. Patents fully disclose exactly how something is done, where the scientific literature, it's often hard to reproduce mm-hmm. um, what somebody has written in a paper because of the, the restrictions on length. Mm-hmm. Uh, but patents have to tell you. That's by, by definition, they have to tell you exactly how something is done. Mm-hmm. So if you can go find a patent that says, like, this is how we figured out how to get people to click on red buttons and you're working on blue buttons, there's probably a lot of really good information in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously brainstorm. Um, you know, you might have good ideas, but a collection of people have better ideas than you mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And so go, go talk to people and brainstorm and don't be afraid to propose dumb ideas. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the most important things is to sleep on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, to Just give yourself your framework. <laughs> sleep on it. Sleep on it. Um, yeah, sorry, boss. I'm not coming in today. <laughs> uh, this is part of my job. I'm doing it's part my of my job. Seven hours. <laughs> yeah, <I> sleep. <laughs> Rarely has my first idea been the right idea. Yeah. Um, it's it's you know mulling it over in the back of your brain for a couple of days um, goes a long way. You may think that you you have a great solution, and then you know a couple of days later you realize like oh I need to go back and and redefine this problem because there's there's some some issues with the way that I actually define the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, once you, you you understand what the customer needs, you have a testable hypothesis, you you know what you're going to do, you you use abductive reasoning to build your prototype. So most what people are abductive fam- reasoning. Yeah. So most people are familiar with deductive reasoning, which is you know A leads to B, it leads to C. Mm-hmm. Abductive reasoning is based on observations and it's not about the logical conclusion like this has to be the answer it's i'm moving in the direction of the answer i don't know what the answer is but what i know now is better than what i knew before Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you don't think of solving your problems as a one-shot thing you're going to iterate so it's all right to have uncertainty Build your models, even though your models aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, don't don't prematurely optimize. Mm-hmm. Um, just just build something that's a little better. You know, like start with the null model, the model that just is the average, and then mm-hmm. say, can I do a little better than the average? Mm-hmm. Um, and then learn from that. So once you have that that prototype, you go and you test it. And a lot of people try to get the model perfect the right time, the first time. And, you know, George Box, the, the famous um, statistician that we all know from his box plots, he has... Um, was his surname actually Box? It was actually Box, yep. And so they're called Box Plots because of him. Yeah, even though the plot looks like a box. Yeah, oh my gosh, I never knew. Wow, <laughs> that is so cool. So he has a quote that I, I sort of live by, and it's like, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Uh-huh. Right? A model is approximating our interpretation of the world. We're never going to get it perfectly right, but can I gleam some information from the model? Mm-hmm. Does, it, does it help me solve the problem better than not having that model? Mm-hmm. Um, so then once we, we do the test, most people kind of look at the test and like, oh, accept the null hypothesis, reject the null hypothesis. And yeah, that, that's important. Um, but 
I think more importantly is to look at your model and and hopefully you've released multiple models uh, Mm -hmm. so that you can run multiple experiments simultaneously. And you go like, where did this model do well? Where did this model fail? Mm -hmm. And then you use that information to go back and think about the problem again, you know, like, emphasize with the the customer like are, are we asking the right questions go and redefine the problem ideate again prototype again um or maybe you just need to go back and prototype like you, you think things are good it's just like hey the model's not really good in this particular segment so let's just go back and see if we can fix that and so you, you build new models and you rinse and repeat and it's this very iterative process that we go through it it's not linear it's not circular um you're sort of bouncing all over the place, but you're using the tests to learn about the, the data and the system that you're working on. And those tests guide your, your further decisions. Mm-hmm. Reminds me a lot about uh, lean startup approaches to like uh, sprints, agile instead of a waterfall methodology. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. They're very similar. Very cool, because like I was actually thinking recently, is there an agile manifesto, but not for developers or for um, product creation, but rather for data science? And it sounds like uh, this is this is what uh, you're describing here. And um, do you have any insights? Like, have you used this, or others used this in in real data science projects? And um, what's the feedback from that? Yeah, so I've been um, developing this um, over the, the last decade or so, mm-hmm. and I've used it in you know, like A series startups or startups that have been around um, are fairly stable, like C series startups, and I've used it in large corporations like Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I've I've been tweaking it along the way, and the feedback that I've been getting from the people that I've been teaching it to has been extremely positive. And they've given me some good feedback on like how I can make it better and how I can rephrase some things. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I talk to people that you know have PhDs, a lot of them are kind of like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how we do it. <laughs> um, no, it's kind of like, yeah, that's not uh, I knew I it do. all I, along. I, I knew it all along, but I just didn't know that I knew it. Yeah. Um, and I think the real strength is coming from people that, and I shouldn't be saying PhDs, people that have research backgrounds. Yeah. I'm saying PhD for shorthand for research backgrounds. Um, you know, people that don't have solid research backgrounds, it, the feedback has been really positive. They've been like, yeah. oh, I've been kind of doing something like that, but not quite. And it reemphasizes some of the things that they need to do. There's There's a tendency for people to sort of you know, have an ill-defined question, just jump in and build a model. Mm. And and really the modeling is the the you know the last little thing you do at the end. Mm. You know, you're almost you're almost done and you only you build your model. Gotcha. Um, and trying to teach people that the, the model is the icing on the cake. And it's mm. all the stuff that goes before that that's really important. I got a slogan for you. Putting science into data science. Yeah, I like, like that. <laughs> like exactly what you said at the start. It all clicks now in my head. Like what you said at the start, that data science is missing that science piece, right? Like we we jump in, we start building models. It's useful for the business and so on. But really, if you approach it as a scientist, there's a lot of um, questioning you have to do at the start, understanding the problem, refining the problem, experimenting, looking different directions and things like that. It's uh, There's a lot more um like frameworks that can be built around the creative element of data science it's not just like a a uh, like a rule book that you just have to follow there's a lot of creativity but hey let's put some you know like how how do we normally do it in science it's through these hypothesis testing through brainstorming as you said abductive reasoning um super cool super cool i think more data scientists scientists should be thinking about that for sure What's an example, if you have, of a project among the, your experience that you've uh, mentioned, of a project that you used this uh, d- data science design thinking approach on, but had you not used it, had you done it the typical waterfall approach or another method, your results would have been different or not as good. Like something where you can say that this method really made a huge difference and added a lot of value. 
Yeah. Um, so I work for this the startup that failed because that's what startups do. Um, <laughs> Most of them, yes. <laughs> Most of them do, yeah. yeah. Um, we were building a smart cup. So the idea was that this cup would sense what you're drinking uh-huh. and um, it would log it for you. And we had intelligence built into it. So let's say you want to control the amount of caffeine that you were drinking or... Um, you wanted to make sure that you were staying hydrated throughout the day. We we tied into your Fitbit. Love that. That's and so yeah, cool. it was it was it was a spectacular project. Um, <laughs> and um, one of the problems that we had is we had to figure out how much liquid was in the cup. Mm-hmm. So the way that the engineering was done was there was a capacitance um, sensor. Uh, sorry, um, yeah, a capacitance sensor along the side. Um, just like the touch sensors on your your smartphone, mm-hmm. and the when you pour a liquid into it, it will sense the sort of the ionic charge in mm-hmm. the liquid, mm-hmm. and it worked really great if the liquid you poured in was at room temperature and it didn't move, and the cup was at room temperature, and you let it sit there for five minutes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well. Not particularly helpful if you're drinking from it, and you know your, your liquid is hot or cold. Mm-hmm. So we were getting these erroneous readings, and so I was like, you know, well, what's the, the real problem here? Like, How can we figure out with the sensors that we have how much liquid is in the cup? So I talked to the engineering team. It turns out capacitance sensors are temperature sensitive. And so there's these little thermal couples, thermal resistors um, along the side that measure the temperature. And the capacitance sensor is supposed to adjust for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, this is where my engineering background kicked in. It's like, well, you, you have a rate of heat transfer through the cup. Mm-hmm. And... So we use those capacitance sensors to sort of adjust um, what the reading was so that we were getting a better measure of, of, of the liquid in the cup. Um, and th- here it's, it's sort of understanding the engineering that's going into it and not just, I need to measure the liquid level, right? It, it's really thinking about what the problem is that we're having and what the physics behind it is, and then diving into that. And we, we got better results, but it wasn't great. Um, so then I got thinking about it more, and there's, there was other sensors on the cup that we were using for different things. So there was a sensor for touch. So if you touch the cup and tilted the cup and that type of thing. So the capacitance sensor would give us weird readings if you tilted the cup because the liquid level would drop. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was thinking about that and iterating and just solving little bits of the problem. So how do I deal with the temperature? I did that. And then, you know, I, I'm just, can, is there other things I can do to get me more accurate results? So I started using other sensors that were meant for something else. And then I started looking at the accelerometer to get the, t- the tilt of the cup so that we could adjust it. So it didn't look like somebody drank just because they tilted the cup. Um, or you know, the cup was in their backpack and it's sloshing around. We just look at the accelerometer. So it's, it's incrementally solving each little problem, breaking it down, diving into the literature to figure out how to do different things. So I had to learn about, you know, the circuitry. I had to learn about heat transfer, all this type of stuff, reading patents on people that have done this before and, and, and brainstorming and, and building little prototypes and, you know, tons and tons of models that failed and didn't do well, but learning from each failure mm-hmm. and going through this process. And and I don't think that if I wasn't using, sorry, let me rephrase that. If I wasn't using design thinking to do this, it would have been an insurmountable problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have just said like, oh, the, the technology's wrong. We have to go back and re-engineer this. And that would have cost us a fortune. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Is that because like you, you, it would have been a lot of fear in front of this problem? Um, doing engineering is extremely expensive um, in t- when you have to make a change. Mm-hmm. So just replacing a sensor would have re- required an entire redesign of the cup, changing mm-hmm. the entire manufacturing pipeline, the supplier pipeline, that type of thing. 
So it's it's easier to work within the constraints that you have than it is to go back and physically re-engineer something. Like you might have to, then you might mm-hmm. get to that point, like, hey, we we just can't solve this problem. Mm-hmm. But using this data science design thinking, mm-hmm. we were able to redefine problems and redefine solutions and you know, step outside of our comfort level by you know getting into the literature and, and seeing mm-hmm. what other people had done. And you notice what I didn't talk a whole lot about there was the modeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The modeling was important, but that wasn't the hard part. Mm-hmm. You know, modeling has gotten to the point that it's it's often just with you know function call and having a really good understanding of the results that you get back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the hard part is defining the problem and figuring out a way to so test it. Would you say that's the main difference that uh, the the standard un kind of like unconscious data science approach is to just model, model, model. Whereas in data science design thinking, uh, you prioritize the defi- empathizing and defining. Yeah, that's it exactly. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, make sure you're asking the right question. Question. Um, why did the project fail ultimately? Uh, the company basically ran out of money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. um, startups are tough. Um, startups where you're building a product are even tougher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the costs are generally the engineering costs up front. Um, and that can run into, you know, $100 million to produce a consumer electronic good. Wow. wow. Um, and then you make your money, you know, after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's a little different when you're talking about um, a software product. Mm-hmm. You can release sort of your MVP, your minimum viable product, and, you know, get some customers on board. And that's what mm-hmm. we're doing at Oracle. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we didn't, wait until we had like the perfect product Mm -hmm. we had a good product and we released that and then you know we you start getting some income from that and then you start you know building up the product more and more a consumer electronic good you know it's a Mm one-off it's either a good product or not good product and and that's what you ship Mm -hmm. gotcha gotcha one thing i've been just thinking about um when you were talking about this cup is like gosh i hope nobody ever puts those into a microwave yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. It would be an expensive cup to lose. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, okay, okay, gotcha. So that was very useful. Um and uh very so, something I definitely should uh take um like a center stage for data scientists. Um is there any place where people can find out more about data science design thinking? Um, I'm thinking of writing a book about it. Um, you should. You I should, should totally yeah. do that. Um, there's the Data Science Go uh, talk that I gave. Mm-hmm. It's probably the the best talk on it. Um, mm-hmm. You can sign up for that and and you know see a ton of great talks and awesome. Um, one of mine is there. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's that's the 2019 conference. Awesome. Thank you for sure. Write the book. I'd love to have a copy of that. That sounds like a great book. Okay, let's uh, let's talk a bit about uh, let's shift gears and talk a bit about um, literate statistical programming. I am very curious what this is and what it's all about. Could you please explain? You've uh, done a talk on this and sounds like a very interesting concept. Yeah. So again, this is around trying to work on solving problems with the way that data scientists work mm-hmm. and. Uh, the, the history of it is there's something called literate programming that uh, Donald Knuth um, from Stanford, a very famous computer scientist, wrote a book on and pretty much every software developer does it today. And the idea basically is that your documentation and your code sit side by side. So the old school sort of IBM approach was, you know, you spent two years writing specifications and documentations, and then you threw that over the wall and the software developers implemented it. We don't do that anymore. This is where the you know, agile comes in, where you, you iterate. And the, the, the idea of having the documentation right beside the code is when you change the code, you just change the documentation. It's right there. Mm-hmm. The, the software developer is responsible for it. Mm-hmm. And you have a single stream of human readable and machine readable code living together. And then you perform a process of tangling and weaving. So the weaving process is where you 
you run the code and you what you get out is a human readable document. Mm-hmm. And tangling tangling is when you run the, run it and what you get out is machine really readable code. So mm-hmm. Jupyter Notebooks, which is what we have in, in the Oracle service, does a, a decent job of this. You have two types of cells. You have a markdown cell where mm-hmm. you would put the human readable output and then you have your, your code. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the traditional approach would be, you know, you, you make some graph and then you cut and paste that graph into a Word document and you write some text around it that explains the graph. Mm-hmm. In literate statistical programming, you don't do that. The, the, mm-hmm. the code and the graph sit right beside each other. So if you want to understand how that graph was made, you just go look at the code. If you want to make a change to the, to the graph, you change the code and the graph changes right there. Mm-hmm. And you don't have this disconnect between the documentation and the, the code. Mm-hmm. So the, the big differences between literate programming and literate statistical programming is that in literate programming, code is primary. And the documentation is optional. Like, mm-hmm. ho- hopefully, you're documenting your code, but but mm-hmm. code is what you want to produce. Mm-hmm. Data scientists, we write code to do our analysis, mm-hmm. but that's that's really not what we're there for. Mm-hmm. Our our primary role is to communicate what the data is saying. So, the the human readable documentation is primary. You need to have the code there, but you know, you shouldn't be handing over reports to your boss that has code in it. He doesn't want to look at that. He, mm-hmm. he wants to look at a nice document that, that he can read that explains the, the problem to him. Um, and this is where the tangling and the weaving happens. So you don't want them separated from each other. You don't want to be cut and pasting statistical analysis. You, when your data changes, you just want everything to change with it. So, so the end product is going to be, you know, a written report, or it may be a model. But like we were talking about before, we don't want our model and our code decoupled from each other. Mm-hmm. We want them sitting together. So, literal statistical program that workflow handles that for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're saving is not the output. What you save is the pipeline. So you're trying to pipeline everything that you do is as much as reasonably possible. Like don't prematurely optimize on something. Mm-hmm. Um, the other things that I do is like, I'll, I'll write a, a code that will generate a graph. And then what I do right below that is I write my interpretation of the graph. Mm-hmm. I just don't say like, here's the graph. I say, mm-hmm. if I'm going to spend five minutes interpreting it, I'll spend a minute writing that up so that when I go back, I don't have to spend another five minutes interpreting mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we're trying to address a bunch of different problems. And one is the, the fragmentation problem. So that the code, the analysis, and the model live all together in one thing. And, and so Jupyter Notebooks and the, the Oracle Data Science Platform does this for us. The, the analysis is there. How to get the code is all there. We save the mm-hmm. model all on the same platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're saving is the state mm-hmm. of, of the system. And we can check this into Get. So that when we make changes, we know those changes, what happens. Gotcha, gotcha. So uh, this is what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Exactly. Okay, understood, understood. Um, interesting. Why such a complex name, though? Uh, literate statistical programming. Uh, is there any reason for uh, for the uh, etymology of this uh, concept? Um, basically, it's a play on literate programming, and I just stuck the word statistical in it. So I didn't come up with this idea. Um, I had heard about it from um, one of the professors at John Hopkins, uh-huh. and um, I've been sort of expanding on it over the years. And, and other people do it, like um, Knitter in our studio mm-hmm. um, is an amazing tool for doing literate statistical programming. Um, they just don't call it that. They just mm-hmm. call it Knitter, but that's a product. Um, and what I want to convey is we should be agnostic to the product and it's the workflow. It's the okay. mindset. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. If you have a better name, I'm open to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, gotcha. It ties in, ties in quite well. So, um, Jupyter notebooks, uh, different types of cells. Uh, do you think there's a, as a way of doing it even better than Jupyter notebooks currently is able to save that information side by side? Yeah, so um, Knitter in our studio does a really good job. So Knitter 
um, ties a bunch of technologies together. So you basically write your documentation in uh, Markdown. And if you're not familiar with Markdown, it is a very, very simplified version of, of a markup language. You can learn Markdown in 15 minutes. There's, there's only a couple of things you can do with it, but it produces nice output. And then the, the R part of R Markdown that Knitter uses is that you can put code right in this Markdown document. Um, and there's two ways you can put code. You can put like a, a code block um, where you can have large chunks of code and do complicated analysis and generate graphs. And you can turn that off so that you know your boss doesn't see it, but it's sitting right there. Um, they also have inline. So you can do things like um, the p-value was... And then you write some R code that prints out the p-value so that when the data changes, you don't have to go back and remember that you need to change that p-value. It's just, it's automatic for you. It's part of that pipelining process. And it also allows you to use LaTeX. Um, and LaTeX is, is a bit tough to learn, um, but I really encourage people to learn. It allows you to write mathematical equations and have a little better formatting. I, mm -hmm. But I think you should sort of avoid doing a lot of formatting stuff uh, and let Markdown just do it for you. Um, so it does a really good job. And sort of my typical output from, from that is a beautiful production-worthy PDF mm -hmm. um, that I can send off to my boss. And, you know, he asks for a change. It's just a quick little change and boom, I send mm -hmm. it off to him again. Or, you know, I get new data. I can just rerun it. Um, so that's a really good workflow. The, the Jupyter Notebook workflow is, is fairly similar. Um, but it doesn't have the, the LaTeX ability and it doesn't have the ability to sort of turn off code chunks. So gotcha. the, the output is not as production worthy. Like I wouldn't hand that over to an external customer, mm -hmm. uh, but it might be fine for my boss. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. I understood. Uh, do you prefer R or Python? Um, I prefer the right tool, um, for the job. So R is a, a purpose-built language for doing analysis um, and statistical analysis. So when I'm doing that type of stuff, I much prefer R. It's mm -hmm. just a, a beautiful language. If you come from sort of a traditional programming background, you might find it very uncomfortable. It's, it's a functional language as opposed to an imperative language. Um, so it's, it's odd. Uh, but if you're, you're coming from a no non-programming background, um, it's a great language. To, to use, uh, and the development environment is really good. Our studio, it's not the only choice, but it's, it's a really good choice. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's better tooling than what's available in the Python environment. Mm. If you're doing more engineering type of coding or you're doing like natural language processing, um, Python is a much better language for that. It's Python is a general purpose computing language. It's not designed for statistical analysis. It's had some really good packages like NumPy and Scikit-Learn bolted onto it, um, but it's not purpose-built for that. Gotcha, absolutely. And John, one uh, more topic. I know this one's quite advanced, but um, let's see how much we can cover off in the remaining time. Data unit testing. What is that? Tell us about data unit testing. Yeah. So um, again, borrowing ideas from other industries, software developers do this thing called unit testing, where they write a function and then they write tests that just test that function. So they test what the input is, what the output is. They test the error conditions and um, often you spend more time writing tests than you actually do writing Absolutely. the real code. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Our and, developers spend like half their time on, on tests. Yeah, and, and most people hate writing. <laughs> yeah. um, but they're very important. So the, the problem that I'm trying to solve is we do the same thing in data science, but we don't sort of capture those tests. We, we spend a lot of time doing exploratory data analysis. That's, that's mm -hmm. the biggest part of, of what we do. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of my, my clip joke is that you know, I'm, I'm a data garbage man. 
because I spend all kinds of time cleaning the data and understanding the data and visualizing it and saying like, oh, okay, this this data here looks like it's a Poisson distribution and this mm-hmm. data over here, here looks like it's normally distributed and um, you know this data you know it's kind of dirty in this way i need to write some tests to clean it up sorry write some some code to clean it up i don't manually clean my code i write code to clean my code um and so I, when i've done all of that the data is going to change underneath me what i thought was a poisson distribution may change to be you know a more normal distribution or log normal or something or a log normal or, or something like that and and now my model's wrong Right, I mm-hmm. built my model assuming that was a, a a Poisson distribution, and how do I detect that? Like, do I go back and do my exploratory data analysis? Not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's it's just way too time consuming. Or, you know, I was expecting that this data has these three things in it, and now there's a fourth one that's been put in, but my model doesn't account for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would. I would write tests, and this is the data unit testing, where I would write tests based on all the assumptions that I have in my data. I'm mm-hmm. assuming that there is three categories in this data, so I write a test on it. I'm assuming that these categories are evenly distributed. So let's say I, I had my original data was you know, fairly balanced between male and female, but then the data shifts over time and there's more females than males. Mm-hmm. Like I need to capture that. That just shifted my model. My model is assuming a certain state mm-hmm. of, of the data. So I never it's, know that. It's not like you, by doing your EDA uh, through manipulations, you inadvertently change the data. It, what you're saying is that over time, populations may change, underlying assumptions may change. And that's what you need to capture. Exactly. Exactly. So we talk about model drift and we monitor model drift. Like, oh, the model was 80% good and now it's down to 75, now it's down to 70. Then you need to go back and figure out, like, well, why is it 70? You have to do your EDA all over again. Mm-hmm. If you had written your tests, you would go, oh, when the model hit 78%, you know, it was because we have a demographic shift. So let's oh, go fix that right okay. now. I know exactly where that problem is, and it's a quick fix. Gotcha. Wow, that is, that is such an insightful tip. So when you're building a model originally, now done all the assumptions that you're putting into your model and not just on paper, but like actually build out the tests, build out the code to verify. And then, you know, with the help of tools like what you're building at uh, Oracle, this data science workflow, you're going to be able to capture a moment in time. What did your tests tell you when you originally built the model? Then you can rerun them again after, you know, six months and explain the model drift because through the exploratory data analysis or data unit testing that you had pre- prepared um, to for this val- for this specific validation. Exactly, and it doesn't have to be six months down. Um, when I was at Amazon, we implemented this, and we had a batch processing where every night we re-updated a bunch of stuff and we ingested a whole bunch of new data, and all we did was run the tests on the new data. Wow. So we would know ahead of time, like it wouldn't stop production. Um, you know, the it would still go to production, but I would get an email saying like, hey, there's been this shift. Okay. Interesting. What happens if there is no shift in your data unit testing, but your model does drift? What does that mean? You probably didn't write enough tests. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Because there's no other explanation, right? Why would exactly. it drift if if your underlying distributions in your data are the same, then it should be predicting the same way exactly it's very interesting hmm and that that helps you go back redo your eda and come up okay which tests do i need to add this time and so that for for the next drift you're more prepared exactly and you don't have to redo the whole eda you you basically know where the model drifted wow could you give us some examples of these data unit testing you already mentioned um distribution of a category like what are some of the typical ones that come to mind so there's, uh, you want to test sort of data quality coming in. That, that's a big problem. So like, I'm assuming this is an integer. I'm assuming that it's between 1 and 15. I'm assuming that I will have no more than 3% loss of like no, no value in this data. 
So they're all really, really simple tasks. And this is what software developers do. They, they write really simple tasks. It's kind of like, call this function with a bad value, and I'm expecting this error. Mm-hmm. They're not you know, complex things. They're all one-liners. It's basically if something's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you want to check all the assumptions that you have in the model. So you, you the distribution, the volume of data that you're getting, um, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very, very interesting. A good uh, diverse range of tests. How many tests would you say is required for, I know it will depend on the complexity of the model, but from your experience on average, how many uh, data unit tests, is it in the tens, is it in the hundreds, is it in the thousands that are required per model? Um, every assumption, every, sorry, every feature that you have, it would be 10, 20 tests sort of at a minimum. Per feature. Per feature. Okay, gotcha. Well, it's quite a lot. Quite a lot. It's quite a lot, but a lot of them are, are cut and paste. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Usually there's not like a, a huge difference from one feature to the next. Gotcha, understood. Um, thank you very much. I, John, I just have one more question for you. Um, so today you, like I learned from you, uh, data science uh, design thinking in conjunction with the data science workflow, then about literate statistical programming, and about data unit testing. I want to understand like what drives you? Like it's clear that you pick up these topics, you think about them, you develop them uh, in your mind, you do talks and presentations. Like where does this where does this passion and these ideas come to you from? Like these three things you've been developing in uh, synchronously over the past couple of months, years. Um, where do you find the drive? Um kind of a fear of boredom and being inefficient. <laughs> um, I, I hate doing things twice mm. um, and really, really, really dislike doing things three times. Um, and so I, I try to automate as much as I can. I also have a really poor memory. Mm. So I have to document everything that I, I do. And that sort of has pushed me in this direction of being a better scientist by you know, not, not having the old traditional lab notebook where you write down everything that you did in the experiment, um, but, but taking that over into, I write down everything that I did by coding it. And then when I code it, you know, what, what problems can I solve around that? And that, that falls into these, these workflow issues um, that we've been talking about and the different techniques that I've been working on to, to solve those issues and communicate those issues out to people so that they can be better data scientists. I, I have a strong desire to help people get better at what they do because the end result is that I get better at what I do. And you know, I want to be the best data scientist that I can be. I want to drive real value for the customer. And you know, the faster I can iterate on the model, the, the better the question I can ask, you know, the, the more value I'm going to bring. And that's exciting to me and therefore I don't have boredom. Fantastic. Love it. Thank you so much, John. Uh, very insightful and inspiring as well. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will pick up inspiration from here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I've very much enjoyed awesome. this. Thanks, John. John, before you go, please tell us where can our listeners um, contact you, connect with you, or find out more about the amazing products that you guys are developing at, uh, at Oracle? Yeah, so the best place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Um, so if you search for John Peach, Peach just like the fruit, P-E-A-C-H, you'll either come across me or my father. Um, he's the handsome one, but I'm the younger one. <laughs> <laughs> um, or it, or my, the address for that is LinkedIn slash in slash J Peach. And to find out about the Oracle service, just go to oracle.com and uh, sign up for an account. And when you log in, there's the data science service on the left-hand side of the console menu. Awesome. Fantastic, John. And one final question for you today. What's a book that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I think um, I read a lot of books. Um, and I think one of the ones that had the most impact in my early days was a very popular book called Introductional to Statistical Learning with Applications in R. Um, it's not really an R book. Um, the, the problems in, at the end of each chapter are in R. Um, but it's, it's written by Trevor Hastings and, and Rob Tipshirani. Um, the first author is uh, Gareth and Witten. Um, 
they're out of Stanford. The book is really good in that it provides a lot of intuition into how different algorithms work. So it focuses on statistical um, learning, which is like basically all data science except for machine learning. Um, basically, machine learning based around statistics. And it doesn't ignore the math. It gives you the math equations, um, but it doesn't like do proofs and stuff like that. It It's great for understanding like how a decision tree really works and what's the bias variance trade-off and like why were random forests built um, to compensate for some of the problems of decision trees and, and what's the trade-off in a random forest, that type of thing. It's, I think, a great book. You can download it for free or you can buy it on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Again, it's called Introduction to Statistical Learning with Applications in R. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Gareth James, Daniela Witten, Trevor Hasty, Robert Tip. Shirani, wonderful john once again thank you so much for coming on the show sharing your insights it was a pleasure thank you very much appreciate it you have a great day thank you very much everybody for sharing this hour with us i hope you enjoyed uh this episode and got as much value out of it as i did i got uh i learned quite a lot of interesting things uh, I love the whole notion of putting science back into data science or putting science into data science. Um, but my favorite part was the data unit testing that we discussed at the end. There was such a, when you think about it, it's such an obvious tip, but somehow it's not as popularized as it should be. Why not have these statistical tests? Why not have these, or what, as John calls them, data unit tests that will help you understand better understand model drift when or if that does happen well not if <laughs> it will happen when it happens you'll have these data unit tests to test your model drift and very excited about what they're creating at oracle uh the whole notion of the data science workflow can help capture these data unit tests among other things um in a, in a moment in time so to help then look back at what was going on what was the data set what was the model version uh, what were my comments? What were the results of these statistical tests and so on? So very exciting times. And uh, thank you very much to John for coming and sharing his insights. As always, you can get the show notes for this episode at superdatascience.com slash 393. That's superdatascience.com slash 393. There you'll find the transcript for the episode, any materials we mentioned on the show and of course, a URL to John's LinkedIn, make sure to connect and a URL to where you can uh, check out uh, more about this solution that Oracle is working on, the data science workflow, and you can sign up if that is something that you are interested in. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to share it with somebody you know, love and care about. Very easy to share, just send in the link, superdatascience.com slash 393. On that note, I appreciate you being here today and I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>